You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, appreciate you guys joining us. A reminder, if you like the show and you listen, go to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and review. Only takes a few seconds. Doesn't have to be a lengthy review. The more subscribers and reviews we get, the more we grow the show, the better guests we get, and it continues to help us grow this Hazard Ground Podcast community, which is what we're really trying to do. Eventually, hope to take this thing to another level and another platform. All this stuff doesn't happen without you guys, so please make sure you go and leave that rating and review on iTunes. We want you guys to be involved as much as possible with the podcast and getting guests and everything, the stories that you want to hear and the people that you know we want to tell them. This week's guest is one of the more unique guests we've ever had because her vantage point is somebody we don't often talk to. She's a retired E-5 sergeant in the Army, a former military policeman, and her story is one that everybody needs to hear. She's traveled all over the globe after the military, including to the South Pole, which I find fantastic. Her name is Margot Mange, and she joins us now on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Margot, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm... Um... I'm humbled to be amongst the people that you've had on your show. So thank you. Well, thank you. I mean, listen, uh, this is a great community that we've developed here at the Hazard Ground, and we're certainly happy to have you part of it. Uh, And the reason that you're here is because, you know, through your career in the military, you've dealt with a lot, including uh, a topic that comes up here on the Hazard Ground a lot, and that's PTSD. And we'll get to what happened to you and your story and your road to recovery as well. But first, start out by telling us how and why you joined the military. Um, probably not a story you get to often. I joined to play soccer in the military. Um, so my recruiter was like, yeah, you can go into the military and the back way into the Olympics if you join now. Um, and there, you know, you can play army boxing, army soccer, army this and that. And I, um, I didn't even think about nine eleven or, any of the the wars going on, I was just like, yeah, I'll get redshirted if I go into college. Um, so during the military and then my sergeant that picked me up from the train station was like, listen, we know you really want to play soccer, but you're going to Iraq in 20 days. So wow, that happened. <laughs> Um, you know, we, we've heard recruiting horror stories before, and I don't know that it necessarily qualifies. It just, was that just something that was kind of needs of the Army at the time, or did you feel misled by your recruiter? No, he, my recruiter knew my mom. I don't think he had any, um, he wasn't trying to fill a slot. He just, he, he actually wanted me to, like, go to veterinarian or something really safe, but then, you know, he dropped me off in METS and he had no control over what job I was going to choose. And so I joined military police because I've always been a tomboy. And so I came back and I was like, Hey, I joined for military police. He's like, I didn't, I didn't tell you to do that. Why did you do that? I was like, well, cause you know, if I'm going to join the army, at least I'm going to do something that's, you know, the closest that females can come to combat. So, um, I think that kind of threw a wrench into his plans about what he wanted me to do in the military as far as going to play soccer. Um, so, well, let me bad. ask you, I mean, that's an interesting point because we, we've had plenty of other females on the podcast who have kind of echoed that same sentiment, expressed that same thought. Like, hey, if I'm going to be in the Army, okay, so the Army won't let me go into combat. No, oh, by the way, for the civilians listening who may not know, females are now allowed in every branch of the Army, uh, so they can be an infantryman or tanker field artillerymen, uh, all those things. So uh, beyond that, but when you signed up, that wasn't the case. So what was the kind of driving force behind saying, hey, I want to be as close to combat as possible? Um, since I was probably in high school, I've always hung out with the guys, as most females do. Um, I had a brother that would beat up on me. I would beat up on him. Um, so I was, you know, I was a tomboy. So if I'm going to go into the military, I wasn't going to do anything that was, wasn't, you know, as badass as possible. And I knew that military police was, you know, it was a police person, but you know, if they're going to be deployed, they're going to be doing something 
that was combat related. And I wanted to be, I don't know, respected as a woman, but also like could hang with the guys. Did you realize, and, I'm sorry to cut you off, but did, did you realize that by choosing that, like the dream of playing soccer was really put at risk at the time or you didn't kind of correlate the two? Didn't correlate the two at all, but <laughs> I just knew, no, yeah, I, I don't know. I think when you're, if you're not like driven by like, there's some people that, you know, when they're nine years old, they're like, I'm joining the military to be a pilot or, you know, Navy SEAL or whatever. But for me, that was never the dream. I, you know, when I was nine years old, I was like, I'm going to play soccer. But then those dreams got screwed up when I failed math when I was 18. So I was like, you know, I'll just go into the military and play soccer. But there wasn't really, there's never a job that just lights up when you go into meth and is like, this is the perfect job to hide and go play soccer. But so since that didn't like light up like a shiny little ball, I was like, well, you know, best of both worlds, I'll just be a tomboy as a military police, but also hopefully get to play soccer. And, you know, I did get to do both, just not at the level that I wanted to. And there's no math involved in military police either, I I suppose. Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so what year was this when you signed up? Um, it was August of 03 when I signed up. Okay. So the invasion of Iraq had just started back in March and obviously what was going on in Afghanistan was still there. And they tell you, you're going to deploy in 20 days. Like I remember when I was told I was going to deploy, it was like a kick right into the stomach. Were you worried at that point in time? Were you scared? Did you think you had made a bad decision? No. So when we were in basic, um, they had just captured Saddam Hussein and you know, we were, they were all like pumping us up. Like, yes, this is happening. Like, you know, you get that like sense of pride. Like this is what I signed up for. And I think I kind of had that like, holy crap, maybe I'm doing this for another reason besides playing soccer. There's a little bit of both things going on for me. Um, and then, but I was still talking to my drill sergeant. So I was like, Hey, can you make sure that wherever I'm going, there's a chance for me to play soccer. But I was also having this like other feeling inside of me, like a huge sense of pride that I'd never had in high school as a female, like, I don't know, shooting a gun or I don't know anything about the military that was never part of my life. Um, But having that, all these people around me, like Saddam getting captured and it was just amazing feeling. Um, And then when I got to my, my duty station and my students aren't picking me up and saying, Hey, you know, these dreams are definitely over for you, but you're going to go to war for your, your country. I was like, Oh, <laughs> oh okay. okay. I, you know, it was definitely, well, definitely a dream ender. It's interesting that you described it the way you did simply because a lot of people that we talked on the podcast, you know, have that sense of pride, that sense of patriotism and country and love for country prior to signing up, whether it was because of 9-11 and everything that happened or for whatever the reason may be. But you found it once you were in, and that's sometimes more difficult, I think. I think people who don't have it prior to signing up sometimes end up not staying for a while. And, and do you think that had you not been injured and hurt and everything else and what happened in your career, do you think you would still be in because of that sense of patriotism and pride? No, I, I would have, I would have been a lifer. I definitely found my people. I, I loved the, the structure that the military gave me. I loved, you know, waking up knowing that this is what I had to do for the day. I, I even loved, you know, I fought it all the time being told what to do, but at the end of the day, I was like, you know, keep telling me what to do. I will fight you tooth and nail, but this is, I think this is what I was born for. Um, it was, yeah, they're my people. And it's interesting that you talk about Saddam was captured while you were in basic and, and the feeling of everybody around you. I was on my second deployment to Iraq when Osama bin Laden was killed. And, and it's different when you are around military folks when something like that happens. I can't really explain why other than what seems you know blatantly obvious and that we're all kind of on the same team and we feel a sense of pride about kind of what goes on. But 
that level of intensity and everything else that you feel when news like that happens because you're part of the same team, that really draws you in. Like, that's a real thing. So I, I get what you're saying with that. Yeah, it, I love I can. I will probably never forget that moment. And it definitely was a game changer for me. Like, okay, this is this is probably why I joined, and it just was a you know a happen chance that I I was because of the the soccer that I originally signed up for, but um, there's probably for other reasons. You know, the funny part is too is when when he was killed, when Hassan bin Laden was killed. Uh, I remember vividly my cell phone, because this is 2011 when it happened, you know, I brought my personal cell phone with me. It was blowing up, like literally people, and and everyone was asking, are you coming home now? I'm like, guys, he was in Pakistan. I'm in Iraq. Why would I be coming home? Like none of them, they're not even related, two totally different things. But anyway, people thought automatically that it was over and we were all coming home when Osama bin Laden was killed. Obviously that didn't happen. Okay. So let's, let's fast forward a little bit. Um, You said it was a game changer and it was. So now you're going to Iraq in 20 days. Um, what happens in those 20 days? What are you told by your superiors? What's your mission? What are you going to do? What, what are you hearing? Um, so might've not been 20 days. It was enough time for us to go to graph and Vera for a short FTX. And then they just said, you know, you guys, you have to learn how to be a driver in Iraq, which was funny because we went to the coldest place in Germany and got frostbite or, you know, hypothermia, and then um, said, you know, you're just going to be doing a mission to train the Iraqi police to not take over for their country, but to police their country. Um, but in 2004, 05 era, that was impossible because they, they weren't ready for that. But it was, we were training them to at least govern their, their country. So... Um, that was pretty dated. I don't really remember what they told me. Um, I just know that that was the mission at that time. And so, to your point, you're hundred percent correct. I was there in 05. So teaching them to do the basics of what they were supposed to do from a police standpoint and a military standpoint was still in the very infancy stages. Um, but yeah. when, when you get there, uh, and you realize what you're looking at and the force that you have to train, what are you thinking? Well, and I, I mean, I was only a pri- yeah, I was only a private, so I I didn't have any kind of knowledge of what was really going on when you know my sergeants would go in and have chai with the police chiefs. All I was thinking was, well, I hope we don't get mortared today, or I hope you know these this tra- this traffic doesn't come too close, or else I'm going to have to you know shoot them or drive through them. I was just I was so lost the first year as a private. I was just doing what I was told. And I had that complete Bambi look like, what the hell am I doing here? But this sure is fun because it's like the Wild West and I can drive through anything. And I can, I mean, it was up until I went through not a close friend's death, but a friend or a, a death of someone in the unit. It was fun because it was, I was 18 and we got to do like, it was lawless, you know? Um, and we didn't really, I didn't really grasp the, the mission that we had. It was just drive here as fast as you can and don't get us killed. It's, it's funny that perspectives, um, and maybe funny is not the right word. It's interesting the perspectives because I think when I got to Iraq the first time I was 25 or 26, uh, and I was a captain at the time and what you see from your point of view, I, I think you, you know, perfectly illustrated. Um, it, 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 there were things as a captain that were fun too, per se, but you get a much bigger sense of what the bigger picture is and what we're up against uh, when you have more information. You, the amount of information you got, as you just detailed, was very small. Hey, drive us here, don't get yeah. killed, um, and do it as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, it, when you put things in that context, in that bubble, uh, yeah, go ahead, have at it. I mean, it, it's the perfect job for an 18-year-old. But as you said, yeah. you know, war ages everybody very quickly and, and you grow up and learn uh, a lot of hard lessons very, very quickly. And when you look back on that time prior to, you know, both you getting injured and, and uh, losing some fellow soldiers and, and platoon mates or whatever it may be, 
Um, do you think that what we were doing there at the time was worthwhile or did you not even have a grasp of that concept either? No, it was, it was definitely worthwhile because the first year, you know, when I did get to go to the Iraqi police stations inside and outside, you know, staying on patrol, the women the first year weren't even allowed to work in the IP stations. They would be wearing the full garb, you know, not talking to anyone, not even talking to the other, you know, Iraqi police. And the children would be so afraid of us. They would just, well, either they would be trying to kill us with, you know, um, vests or, or they would just stay away from us. And then the transition from when we first got there to the end of our deployment or to the second deployment, the women were allowed to work at the Iraqi police stations and they wouldn't have to wear the full garb. We could actually see their faces and it was just, it was a dramatic difference. And yes, they were still trying to kill us, but they also were like, they were allowed to work. The women were allowed to work. There was a different, there was a difference. And so we were definitely supposed to be there. How long was your first deployment? It was 12 months. Okay. So you were there for a whole year. So you finish your first deployment and you go back. Uh, what's your reflection period like? Did you even were you even able to put it in terms, or what was different about life at that point in time? Um, coming home on leave, I felt like I couldn't even talk to my friends that I, you know, you'd visit your high school friends and you know they hadn't changed at all. Um, I'm what I'm 19, 20 at the time. And they're still having the same old parties. And I had just gone through war and I, you know, you can't have a conversation with somebody that hasn't seen the stuff that I had. And I'm just, you know, I have that thousand yard stare. Um, and I just, I don't even want to, you know, drink with anybody cause it's just, it's pointless. Um, and then, going back and doing like road duty in Germany just seemed pointless because I don't want to give people tickets because <laughs> that seems pointless. Um, because we're all at war. Like, are you, are you fucking serious? So I actually, I didn't ever give anyone tickets. Um, the only ticket I ever gave was a parking ticket at 2 AM because my unit made me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I should run into more policemen and, like you, you know, for the record. Yeah. That would be nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I enjoyed, I didn't enjoy, but I liked going out on like the real police work, um, like making us go to crashes where we were involved with the German police. Um, and like being a, like not a divide, but, um, like where they needed the Americans for, if there was a, a dispute between American and German, like, like if we were actually needed, um, but they didn't like doing the, the stupid little stuff. When you said you couldn't talk to your friends, were you able to talk to your family at all either or no? Um, I can't remember the, the in-between time. Um, I definitely needed my family after the second deployment, but right. after the first deployment, I don't really recall. Do you, when you look back on it, do you wish you had talked to your friends about what went on? Even if you knew they wouldn't understand, do you wish you kind of just let some of that stuff out? Um, I don't think anything, I don't think I needed to get anything out after the first deployment besides, I mean, I was really into writing letters and I had, you know, soldiers, angels and all the, the people that would, you know, write you letters just because they wanted to help. And I, uh, I almost abused the crap out of that. Like I had so many people writing me letters and sending me holiday cards. It was almost like people would come to me as the MWR for our unit because I would, I would just get all the stuff and then hand it out to everybody. So I think that was my therapy, just writing random strangers. <laughs> right. Um, so it's not that I didn't talk to anybody. I would just talk to random people. Um, and tell them, tell them what's going on. Because the, I felt like everybody needed to know. For those listening out there, th there are organizations out there. And as a matter of fact, my first deployment, I got the same thing. I forget what it was called. It was, uh, 
But anyway, I, I developed a pen pal, somebody I'd never met and never known, and they corresponded with me, and I wrote letters back to them and kind of told them what was going on. And there are these organizations out there where you can just write anybody overseas. You can go into a database and you pick a soldier and you just write them a letter and hopefully they write you back. Because for us, sometimes getting mail over there is like the biggest morale boost. You know, it's just something that's normal about your life that you don't get over there. And so people are kind enough to just write random letters and say, hi, my name is Mary and I live in Wisconsin and you know, here's what I do. And I thank you for doing what you do and so on and so forth. And it just starts up a friendship. So I, I had something very similar. Um, yeah. during my first deployment as well. It's, it, it's very, very therapeutic, as you said. All right. So when you survived the first one and given you had seen what you had seen, and, and even though if nothing bad had happened to any of your, your folks, you're over there and you know what, you know, the depths of evil are, and, and you see some things that you'd probably likely never see in America. If you, if you, um, even wanted to see them, you, you would have a tough time seeing them. When you go through all that, and then you're told you're going back, were you, scared were you hesitant or were you more excited um i was pissed that we were going back to iraq it was why like the devil that you do know because versus the devil that you don't know i really wanted to go to afghanistan because i i had already been to iraq and it was i it was just i already knew it and i wanted something new and i don't know if exciting is the word just that I'd already, we'd already driven all over Iraq and I don't know if it was the apprehension of going back to some place that had already tried to kill me and I wanted to go to a place that hadn't killed me before and seen if that could, that could kill me. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense at all, but it was just, yeah, it was, we kept saying it over and over. It was just the devil that you do know versus the devil that you don't. It's funny that you bring it up that way. Um, and again, this is more about perspective. I remember when I was told I was going back to Iraq the second time, I was actually excited because I wanted to see what had changed. Like my my deployments, because mm-hmm. I'm a National Guardsman, my deployments were four, four and a half, almost five years apart. And um, I was curious as to what everything looked like after I left. And I remember, you know, I had a journal that I kept while I was there the first time. And I remember remarking, hey, maybe in five, 10 years, I'd love to come back here and vacation like thinking that this war was going to be short. Hey, it would be done in a couple of years and we'd all be good and we would be friends afterwards. Boy, again, was I mistaken. But I ended up coming back five years later and looked at how everything was and I was just like, wow, what a waste because things did not look better after five years. They didn't. Um, And so I had a little bit of a different perspective from that standpoint. When you get back there, what was your reaction to the way things were? Were you in the same spot the second time as well? So we flew into a different spot and we stayed in Anaconda for a month. And then, so we thought we were staying there and realized, okay, this is, you know, this is cool. We're staying here. But then we went to the exact same spot. So you were were in Balad first, right? Balad, right. As you refer to, just for people listening, I'd like to give them a little background, but Balad is about 30, 45 minutes north uh, of Baghdad. Uh, It's, you know, it's not that far of a drive, but. Uh, it was where there was a big base that the Americans had right there. And then we went right back to Rustamaya or Cuervo in the middle of Baghdad. Oh, okay. And we were almost in the exact same barracks or, you know, oh, wow. um, that we stayed at in the first deployment. And it was, I don't know if it was comforting or, um, I, I guess it was nice um, because, I don't know. I didn't die the first year. So it was like, well, all right. I know, I know the base. I know, I know my way around the town or the city. Um, so we stayed in Baghdad for four months and then they moved us to the little outpost, uh, because that's what was popping up in Oh five. No, Oh six, Oh seven was we would, they would send smaller MP units to stay at these outposts. Um, so we would stay at Shield first, which is, I don't know, 10 miles from Rustamaya. And then they would break us up even to smaller units, like three squad or three trucks, three, three or four trucks to um, like Saddam's old palaces. And so I was at Old Mod and my other platoon was at Callahan. And so we were just spread out all around. Right. Um, Baghdad. Okay. Did you notice? And any, that was the second deployment. 
Did you notice any changes in the Iraqi police that you were working with? Were they better, worse, different? Well, so since I had, I was a specialist, but really had like sergeant privileges, I would be able to go in and actually know like what was really going on. I, I noticed that things were a lot shadier. Like we would, we would go in and confiscate all these weapons that the IPs were, you know, stealing from people, but using them as our own. So it just seemed like, you know, what are you guys doing as Iraqi police? This is not your, you know, you're not supposed to do this. Why do you have hordes and hordes of weapons? And it just seemed like they were getting paid by the, the militants or whatever to, you know, it just seems so shady, and I have no idea how things were running the first year compared to the second year that I was there because I didn't have the privileges that I did the second year. To uh, Margot's point in the bigger picture, I mean, the corruption is still just rampant. I mean, it's, it's always has been. I mean, even now with the, with the Constitution and the government the way it is, Iraq still has a lot of corruption from top to bottom. And, and uh, you know, this may not sound too PC, but some of that is just the culture of— what they've grown up in for the last 2000 years. I mean, it's just, it, it is the way it is. It's hard to break that stuff. You can't inject integrity into, into a society that doesn't hold that as one of their major values. And that's really kind of what you were up against and what we were all were up against while we were over there. So now that you realize things are going on and kind of, it's not going the same way. Um, are your senses heightened? Are you feeling more nervous? Are you scared? Um, I don't think you're, I wasn't, I don't think I was allowed to be heightened or scared. Like, cause you're always, your sentence, sense, whatever, are always at the same level for me. Like one day I'd be a gunner and you know, I'm always on guard and then you just get exhausted cause you're on guard. Like we were there for nine months doing the exact same mission and at, you know, you just get fatigued, you get mentally fatigued. And so you know, you just get tired. Um, and you know, I think, I don't know, I guess I can blame that for like, I'm, I'm always like on guard, like looking and looking and looking and everything looks suspicious. Everything looks like a bomb. Every donkey with a wire coming out of its ass looks like a bomb, but really, is it just trash? Is it just, just a dead donkey? Is it just a dead body? Like (laughs) everything looks suspicious and but then like your mind just plays tricks on you and everything is going to kill you yeah i mean it's amazing to hear you saying for those listening i mean that's just training at its finest right there margo i mean really you you were doing exactly what you were trained to do uh and it gets to a point where you know i was out on the roads more than most of the infantry was when i was there on my first deployment i might have had about six or seven thousand miles um over the course of, you know, a 15 month deployment, I was out a lot and it got to be the same thing where you just, every rock on the road you thought could explode. Every, you know, hole that you saw might've had an IED in it. Everything was danger and and that does great on you and and it makes it very tough. And I I guess my next question is, is did that mental exhaustion lead to what initially got you hit? And I, I have no idea. Like I can go back on that day over and over and over again. Um, but so it's, it's kind of a two part question or answer. Um, so when I was originally hit was in December and it was at 2 AM in the morning and I was in the gun. Um, so I had no control over it. Um, but we were doing a, um, a secure or route, training with the Iraqi police. And so they were part part of our mission. And so it was my truck and then an Iraqi police truck and then another truck of ours and so on. And so, um, you know, you really can't see anything at 2 a.m. in the morning. Um, and at that time, the gunner had to be at name tape death late, which is, you know, your name tape. You couldn't be any higher up out of the turret than that. Um, so my, you know, I couldn't see much besides out of that crack in the, uh, the gunner shield. And so 2 a.m., not seeing much. And all of a sudden, the Iraqi police vehicle behind 
behind me drops back like 300 yards. And then all of a sudden the, the roadside bomb goes off in the center median. So I'm hit throat. I, my head goes back into the turret and I'm knocked unconscious for 30 seconds. And my gunner or my driver and um, my TC are screaming at me, like asking me if I'm okay. But the thing that's really suspicious about it is, you know, the Iraqi police vehicle then creeps up and then they ask for a band aid once everything is, you know, settled. But they're the ones that blew us up because, you know, they probably called to someone and it's like, hey, you know, they're coming around the, the corner right by this mosque, which is like the breeding ground for everyone that's evil there. And then it was just it was a horrible situation because we couldn't move. My my truck was completely disabled from this roadside bomb. And, and I'm just sitting there after I woke up and just waiting for something else to happen because this, this wall next to me is peppered with, with bullet holes. And I'm, I checked my five and 10 meter, whatever. And, but nothing happened because the Iraqi police were with us. And so nothing was going to happen because they didn't want their buddies to die. It was just, it's just a shitty situation because we're there trying to help them, but they're like, they're, they're fucking setting us up. So, so that was the first part of my. So you believe in your heart that the IPs had kind of turned and, and, even though you were helping them, they, they wanted you guys eliminated. Yeah. Cause I mean, how much do you think they got paid from that? They probably got, you know, their families fed from that experience because all of us had bounties or money on our, our heads at that time. Like for a blonde American female, it was like 50,000, whatever. Yeah. If you captured one alive. So how much would it be for if you killed one? Wow. I mean, that's just, you hear that story and, you know, because I've been there, I can mentally picture the whole thing. But, um, you know, when, when that bomb goes off, um, I know you were knocked unconscious when you wake up, are the voices of your, your fellow vehicle mates, is that the only thing you hear and see? I mean, did you think you were dead? I didn't think, I just, was like, because I at that time we had the gunner um, plastic shield, so I tried to respond, um, but it was just reverberating back into the plastic and just going straight into my ears, and like they were pounding, so I couldn't say anything because it just hurt, and I really wanted to scream at my sergeant to say shut up because it hurts, um, and then it just I felt like I was in a vacuum because all this debris and a cloud of dust was just surrounding me. And I didn't think that I was dead. I didn't think anything. I was just like, what the fuck just happened to me? This is, and it was, um, yep. I didn't, I didn't think at all. Okay. So, uh, you make it back out of there safely as is the rest of your vehicle. Thankfully. Um, yep. the next 24 hours, what's the reflection like? Did you realize how close you would um, come to dying and, and any of that stuff? I went and hugged the people in my unit that, like, I was happy to see, and I was like, "Hey, this just got blown up, <laughs> and I'm alive. This is pretty sweet, right?" <laughs> like, I was, I was pretty like, like, "Hey, this, like, I got, I deserve a combat action badge." Like, woohoo! Right. I don't know. It was, I, I almost have a high. I had a high because of it. Um, and then that kind of settled down and then like the massive headache settled in. And then I realized that I couldn't call my family for three days. And I started freaking out because um, I was worried that they might've gotten a call, which they did. And so then I finally got a hold of them. They're like, what the fuck? So we wait, why, why couldn't you, you call your family? Call? Yeah. Why couldn't you call them? Because, they were, there was a combo blackout because of something else. And so they wouldn't let me call. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to wait three days. And then once I finally called them, they were pretty pissed. <laughs> but they were very happy to hear me. Um, and, yeah. So 
I just remember having um, cotton in my ears for three days because I had three days down. And then I went back and the next couple months was just, I don't remember if I had headaches or if I had anything wrong with me. I just remembered that I was kept doing my mission because I wanted to go out with, with my guys. Did you have any fears or reservations about going back out again? No, I was, I, out of everything that ever happened, that was just like a, like, sweet. Now I have something under my, my belt to make me feel like I actually went to war. I don't know. No, that's, I mean, that's, that's fair. I, I think everybody, you know, unless you're kind of like a, a special ops type person, um, for the regular army folks, that's a normal reaction. I think everybody has that. Yeah. Um, hey, I got my story. Yeah. You know, I got the one story I can tell. Yeah. Because uh, it's the one thing when you get back, all the civilians ask you, did anything happen to you over there? When you, ha- you you can say, yes, I have a story. So from that standpoint, I, yeah. I think that's normal. But um, it, it's, you know, the first story isn't the one that, that obviously, you know, is one that sticks with you more than the second one or the the, the one where you, you lost some of your fellow uh, fellow platoon mates. Tell us about what happened there. Yeah. Yeah. So um, three months later, um, we were the mission started getting really stupid from from up above they were we were only supposed to go out for four hours it was supposed to be a laundry drop to the green zone and then come back but when we were out they were like nope you gotta stay out for eight hours just because you know that's that's the new that's the new standard and so start bitching about it but we can't do anything and my sergeant at the time just got back from leave so he wasn't up to date about which routes were black and blah, blah, blah. But so we went and checked on all the Iraqi police, um, their, their zones and what they were doing. And we took, um, a left down a black route. And as soon as we did it, I was like, don't think we're supposed to be down this route. And Margo, let me stop you you one second, just for people listening who aren't military. When she says a black route, uh, the, the routes that we traveled on were, were color-coded for safety. So green obviously was good. You know, yellow was, there, there, there is some previous recorded activity. Red is, there is a lot previously recorded activity. And black is, don't drive on the road because you are going to basically drive into a kill zone. So uh, when she says black, that's what she's referring to. I'm sorry, Margo. Go ahead, finish up. No. Yeah, so drove down this black route and... The time that I had driven down it before, um, we picked up some dead bodies because that was what our mission was with the Iraqi police, like just pick up dead bodies and take them to the morgue. And so I was looking on the side of the road looking for dead bodies just because like, it was the tactic, like they'll put bombs in dead bodies. And so I looked on the side of the road and um, like a half an hour before my best friend that was in the truck behind me was like, I love that you drive fast. Like you were the best driver in the platoon because you drive fast and you don't bullshit. But right when we got in the trucks, my TC was like, Hey, we got to keep the the speeds down because we're just trying to waste time. So keep it 15 miles per hour. And I was like, ah, like everything seems wrong. Driving slow, driving down a black route. This is crap. So I'm driving slow, looking for dead bodies, go over this, spot that I didn't even see next thing happens truck behind me is upside down in the air and they got hit with a 50 pound IED and this truck had my best friend Ashley and two others Michael Peake and Brandon Parr and I just screaming at Sergeant Gerhard I'm like their truck is on fire it's upside down I'm screeching to a halt and then um, it's like so I open the door grabbing my gun and I'm trying to find a fire blanket because in my rational head like put the fire out and I gotta you know I have my gun for any anything that's gonna happen but I don't really care about getting shot I just want to put the fire out um but right as our third truck comes up for protection sorry Gerhardt grabs my my vest and pulls him back because at that time like their truck is completely demolished. All their rounds are cooking off. Like there's no getting to them. Like they're, they're gone. And 
he just says, man, just like, you're gone. You can't get to it. It's too dangerous. At that time, like the 84 is like cooking off. And so all I could do was go back to the truck and monitor the radios. And so for the next two hours, I got to watch in the rearview mirror, my best friend and two others. I know they are dead, but you know, in at that time I was just watching my best friends die and it was pretty horrific. And I, yeah. You, you hit on a bunch of things there. I think that are incredibly important. Um, you know, sometimes uh, everybody who's been in combat knows this. We, we have certain things in place for a reason, certain standards and certain, you know, SOPs, standard operating procedures that we hold to, i.e., you know, we travel fast, we move quick, and, and we don't stay in one spot too long because we've become a soft target. Uh, when you get the, hey, we're going to go 15 miles an hour down the road, and as you mentioned, everything doesn't feel right um, because you become this much easier, slower target, um, do you, do you, when you look back on it, do you feel like had you been going at a normal speed, this doesn't happen? Do you feel like if you had not been told to stay out longer hours, this doesn't happen? Because I think, you know, war is very random and it doesn't necessarily choose individuals. It just happens the way it does. But do you ever kind of look back with those thoughts and say, if we had done this, if we had done that, the results would have been different? Oh, I should have, could have, would have this to death. Um, I mean, for the first couple years, I blamed my officers and commanders that weren't out there, but making decisions for us till I was blue in the face. And I, I mean, it drove me fucking insane. And, and at the same time, I know my, my sergeant that was in the TC that made that call, it, it actually put him in the ground. He committed suicide because of it. Um, so, you know, Oh my God, such is war. Like this shit, this shit fucking happens. And I mean, all the only people that are to blame is the ones that planted that fucking bomb and wanted to kill Americans that day. And so the only, that's the only thing that, that I really have to say about that is that, you know, we could have been driving faster and then the last truck would have been hit or we couldn't, we could have gone down another route and a month later, someone could have hit us with another fucking IED, you know, like it's war and I'm in a much better place than I am like six years ago, but How, when you get back from that mission and you go back to, you know, base camp, whatever, and you sit down and you start to process what happened, what are you thinking and feeling? I mean, obviously I assume tears were shed, but you know, is it rage? What's going through your mind? Oh, I didn't, it was. Oh my God. It was so fucking stupid. So our unit, our chain of command got us in, but then there, I, the first thing I did was hug my, my best guy friend that was there. And I was like, they fucking killed him. They fucking killed him. What the fuck? I was just screaming at the top of my lungs. And at the same time, our commander came out and he's like, don't do this out here. There could be snipers. I was like, are you fucking serious? You're going to fucking tell me not stand right here because this is dangerous. We're in a fucking compound. I'll, I'll fucking grieve wherever the hell I want. What did and, he say? Like, what did he say when you said that? Um, they looked at me like I was crazy and I probably did look crazy. Like I probably had like fire in my eyes and I don't think they wanted to mess up with me. Like, <laughs> and then like I went up to, um, Ashley and I's room we shared it with one other female that was not, I think she was on leave or she was on a different mission. And I kind of like took claim of Ashley's stuff and <laughs> I went off my, like I just went crazy and I didn't allow anyone to touch her stuff. I was like, no, no, like you're not going to touch it. You're not going to box it up. I'm going to be the one because I know Ashley's dad and I can do it and no one else can do it. <laughs> like, it was, yeah, I went crazy. Um, yep. 
Did did your chain of command want to pull you out at that point in time? Uh, no, they didn't. They didn't want to pull me out. They were just like, "Hey, you know, you're still in a war zone. We still need you. You know, you are still part of this team, and you're gonna need to man the fuck up and go out on missions." And like, I see that they were doing the right thing now, but at that time when they told me to man the fuck up, I wanted to punch them in the face. And I almost did because I was like, dude, my best friend just died. I watched it all. I blame myself. I fucking hate you. Um, just give me a couple of days. I would really like to just drown myself in some coding coster. Can I just, can I do this right now? <laughs> and so they gave me like three days of some alone time. And then they were just like, we, we got to have you. Like we are already down four people because of this we need you as a driver and but then like after that when I was driving I was just in my legs would like cramp up because I was in so much fear and and then eventually (laughs) um it led to Bell's palsy like I was my face became like paralyzed I don't know if you know what Bell's palsy is but half of my face was like it just stopped working I, I am. Well, listen. You are. Your strength is is unreal. I, I don't want to underscore that because, as angry and as crazy as you were, I don't think there's anything that's not justified about it. And and you know, I, I hear you tell the story, and I, you know, I want to reach out and give you a hug just because that's probably what you want more than anything uh, when you hear it. And I know the people listening who have been through similar things. Uh, understand the range of emotions that you went through and the fact that you were able just to strap on some gear again and throw on your Kevlar and get back behind the wheel of a Humvee to go do the same thing again uh, must have been one of the most difficult things in your life ever. It was, but I, like, I'm just, I was trained to do that, but I wasn't trained to do that. And that, it, like, it all kind of comes in, like, we, I've talked about this with so many people, mostly SF and commandos and SEALs, and I'm just, I'm so jealous because they were trained to be prepared to see death and to smell death and to experience it. And so when I experienced it, my body just went into this complete shock and awe. And I just wasn't, I fucking joined the military to play soccer. <laughs> I did not join the military to see my best friend burned to death. And so when it happened, I, you know, my unit needed me and I failed them. I failed everyone in my unit. And so when I left because of Bell palsy, I just felt like an utter failure. And it was horrible for me because I've, I always looked at myself as this huge tomboy as, you know, someone that would totally like took pride in the fact that when the guys in my unit, like looked at me, they didn't look at me as a blue Falcon, as a, as a sick hall ranger, as what a lot of guys in the military see females as like, I was, I was the one person that they would like could count on. But then when that shit happened, like I was, I completely shut down and that's what sucked because I, I wasn't trained properly to expect death. Well, Margo, none of us really are. I mean, even, even you talk about the spec ops guys and then the seals and the green berets and whatnot, um, training to kill a lot more the way they do. Yes. Prepares you for it. But no one is ever really prepared to see death in the manner that it happens, especially in combat. And and so you're right. You're 100% right. Of all the training that we get in the military, it's the one thing they never teach you. Well, how do you react when your best friend gets killed in combat? And some ways are more gruesome than others. And, you know, there is there's no manual for that. And, you know, you're not a failure by any stretch of the imagination. I, I know that's how you felt, and I, and I understand the feeling, and I empathize, but... Um, you know, I look at you more in the other direction that the fact that you even, again, put your gear back on and went back out there to me, because I think a lot of people who had been through what you had been through would have quit on the spot. And it may have been justified. Now, in our world in the military, it's not justified, but I think most people would say, I get it. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't think I had. Well, I mean, I 
I guess I did have a choice. Like there were some people that had to go to, you know, the mental, um, or the wizard as they called it in the green zone. <laughs> um, but I, w- I stayed around for I think 27 days and then my face gave out, um, which that in itself was a pretty funny story. Um, I was out on mission and I, I woke up with my face pretty much paralyzed and I woke, went to my, um, my, my doc in my unit and they were like, yeah, I think you slept on it wrong. You should come back in 24 hours. <laughs> so I came back and they're like, oh yeah, it's, it's still broken. You should, you should go to the green zone, you know, docs. And so I went to the green zone and they're like, oh, you're definitely in your third trimester of pregnancy. I'm like, are you fucking serious? Do I look pregnant? <laughs> and they're like, oh, um, no, you don't look pregnant. I don't, I don't know what's going on. So they like, you know, like worked up my face and like fooled around with it. And they ended up dislocating my jaw somehow. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I was completely afraid of them. And they put me on like a high dose of Percocet. And then they shipped me back to, um, to launch because luckily my Lieutenant Colonel had Bell's palsy 20 years ago. But the, um, the way that they treated it then was electroshock therapy. And so he ended up drooling out of his eye. And so he's like, listen, I don't want this happening to you. So we're just going to send you back to launch tool and you'll come back in a week. But when I went back to launch tool, they saw that the initial IED that I had three months prior, like I was screwed up from that. So you're like, yeah, you're, you're done. You're ended. Okay. So when you get home, what do you tell your parents about what happened to, to Ashley? Um, I actually, so the days after Ashley died, you know, they put me on gate guard because that's all I could do. Um, I wrote my parents a letter that detailed it all. And I, my parents are divorced, but I said, you know, you guys are only allowed to read this together because it's gruesome. It's, everything that happened, but I need to get this out to someone. Um, and so they still have it. They've actually given it back to me. And, um, so they, uh, they were, they were so helpful to me. Um, when I got back to launch they said, you know, you're going to need probably brain surgery sometime, but you're also going to need to, you, you have PTSD. Um, so you can either go to um, Walter Reed or you can go to Colorado and you can get brain surgery anywhere, but you can't get, can't get family support. So I was able to go to Colorado because my family was there and, and I had that family support that, that I desperately needed. How do you begin to deal with your PTSD once you're back? Um, I don't acknowledge it at first. I only acknowledge my headache and my throbbing pain because that's actually like something that I can physically feel. And I'm like, what? the only thing that's wrong with me is that I have a TBI and like severe nerve damage. And that's the only thing that's wrong with me. And then um, after like a lot of doctors saying, you've got other things going on with you, you know, you you have PTSD. I'm like, fine. So I go through a ton of therapists because they all suck and they all want to mother me and tell me what to do. I finally find one that I can almost feel like we're on the same wavelength that I can cuss at, that I can tell her to like, fuck off. Like she's an asshole. She just took everything from me, took all my abuse but then, like, she finally broke through, and um, I went to four years of therapy, but then I finally found that the outdoors was what I needed, and I needed to just, I needed to build pain, because it felt like the only way that I could really live for my friends that died was through acknowledging that I'm still alive. And the only way that I feel still alive was, I don't know, almost punishing myself, but it wasn't punishing myself. It's just that 
when I, I lived on the couch for so many years watching Grey's Anatomy, and but it, I was almost dying every single time, every day. So when I was outside, it was it was pain, but it was like this alive kind of pain, and and so I can I know I knew that I'm living for my friends. You had mentioned that Sergeant um, was so overcome with guilt that he ended up taking his own life. Did you ever get close? Yeah. So he came back to Launchstool about the same time as me. Um, well, no, like a, maybe a month or two after. And his wife and I were close. Um, she kind of took me under my her wing when I was alone. Um, and what was sad is that the unit blamed him for everything because they, How? I don't know if he went crazy out. Like he did go to the wizard after, after they died, Like he could not continue going out on missions because of the severe amount of weight on his shoulders, which I think only the people in that convoy and in the front truck could understand. So only three people could understand. And so when he got back to Germany, it was only me and him. And I was so medicated from all my brain crap that I wasn't in the spot to be a friend, be a soldier, be anything that I didn't know what was going on. And then when he, so he got into he was doing okay, and then, and then he kind of fell off the face of the earth, and I didn't know what was going on. And but right before he left Iraq, he pulled a gun out on his soldiers, his new soldiers. Oh wow! But it was a plea for them to kill him. Oh my god! And no one sees it as that. He was just—he just pulled his nine mil out, and he because everyone was just giving him so much crap, and he's like, fine. If you want to kill me so bad, kill me. Because his gun wasn't loaded. But he was, it was, it was a de- desperate attempt for someone to just end his life because he had so much guilt on him. And no one can see that now. I don't, it was a, it was a horrible situation. That's, I mean, it's just a, it's a heartbreaking story. Like I, that just, it, it's tugging at me right now. Like I'm, I'm, and if you're listening to this and you're not military, I mean, you can't really, even though, you know, Margo's doing a fantastic job of explaining all the emotions, unless you've been there, I don't know if you can truly kind of sympathize with what goes on. Um, when you heard he had killed himself, what were you thinking and feeling? So I heard that he killed himself um, because I sent my email, sent a spam out to his wife and his wife, he killed himself near the, around the reunion of my three friends' death. And so his wife reached out to me and she's like, Hey, I don't know if you knew, but Gerhardt killed himself. And I was like, fuck, I had no idea. I'm so sorry. Um, but you know, I hope he's in a better place. And so then maybe six months later, there was a Facebook chat about, you know, my unit was almost speaking badly about Gerhardt and, and I just wanted to like squash everyone speaking badly about them because he was, you know, he was hated by most of my platoon just because of the way he left things in Iraq, because he did pull a nine mil out on two soldiers or one soldier. And I just wanted everyone to know that, you know, he was hurting and if he had never went down that black route, and gotten, I don't want to say he got people killed because the Iraqis killed them, but if he never made that that left turn, then he would have never committed suicide. And I don't think anyone should speak illy of him. Because there's been many times that I've wanted to, when I was in my darkest days, I wanted to commit suicide. I mean, I would trade places with Ashley any day. What kept you from doing it? Because, because of Ashley, because I want to be stronger. I want to continue living for them. Yeah. 
and she'd fucking be pissed <laughs> if I took the easy way out. I mean, God, I, the fact you still get out of bed some days sometimes is, is surprising to me, just hearing you tell, tell this story. Where are you now with everything? I mean, are, are you, can you ever get to a point of reconciliation with all this? Um, so I don't, I think that you just accept PTSD. I don't think you get over it or, you know, over someone that you watch. There's so many things that I can just close my eyes right now and see. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I talked to so many Vietnam vets that, you know, were in the trenches and they had, you know, all their, their stories, you know, they just pop them off like it was yesterday. And I feel like that's going to be our generation. Like you just yeah. pop them off and you just, you just live with it. Um, and I don't want to ever forget, but I want to accept it. Um, and so that that's where I'm at. And, you know, there's always going to be hard days and, March 3rd fucking sucks. Um, but I have, I have an adopted family. <laughs> Ashley's family has taken me in their, their family and they love me and I love them. And so, you know, it's good. When you first met with Ashley's family, what was that like? Um, so I called Mike Moyer the day that Ashley died and, I told him, I'm definitely not the one that told him, but I, I asked for Ashley's name tape and he's an awesome guy. He's just like, you, you do whatever you need to do. You take whatever you need to take. This is, you know, you need to heal from this too. And then I met her stepmom and, and her dad in Pennsylvania. I went out there and Peggy Sue gives the biggest hugs in the world. And they're just, they're most, they're the most welcoming family in, in the world and it's hard not to love them. Um, yeah, they're just, they're great. They're definitely hurting from it and we'll never forget Ashley, but they've definitely been a support system that I wouldn't be the same without. Do you have any regrets? <clears throat> no, I do not have any regrets. I actually have a tattoo of no regrets. So it's, I just, you, I've, I don't know. I learned from everything that I've gone through. And I mean, I've been able to travel all over the world because of the things that have happened to me. Um, do I wish that I didn't have a headache every single day of my life because of the shit that happened? Definitely. But I don't regret signing on the dotted line raising my right hand for my country no I would do it all over again you mentioned that uh, you've traveled all over the world including to the South Pole I I wanted to hear about this when I read about it I'm fascinated why did you get down there and what was it for um so when I started doing outdoor outdoor pursuits um for for my health I guess um I met a guy that took me to code epoxy first and then he's like hey you should sign up for this south pole adventure um they're trying to raise awareness for for veterans um they're a british nonprofit called walking with the wounded and i was like definitely not the you know the sled weighs more than me um but he's like you know you you definitely can do it you should just try out so i went and tried out and um I was one of the only two females to try out and the other female was, you know, tougher than me, stronger than me. And she was more outgoing. So I thought, well, I'll at least get to go to Iceland and that'll be it. And then when I went to Iceland, I just was, it was just, it was my jam. Um, I, I fell in love with the people and like the whole idea of just trekking across ice, being alone with your thoughts, knowing that you had to set up a tent and boil water, make food, go to sleep and do it all over again. Like for days on end, just felt like the military all over again. And so I needed to do it. And so I got on the South pole team. And so it was a race to the South pole with, so there was American team, a British team and an Australian Canadian mixed team. 
And so we got to go for 30 days. And halfway through it, the race ended because they took um, all injured vets, which ended up injuring us more because we're all aggressive and just want to win. So they made it a walk. But, um, yeah, it was the happiest place that I've ever been. So it was so cold. I just had a permanent smile on my face, and I, I could go back every single day of my life. Have you ever played soccer since? I have. Um, I'm on an indoor league right now. Um, I do not hit the ball. I I sub a lot, um, but it it's worth it. It's worth all the pain. Um, I yeah. I mean, I need it. I need that that aggression outlet and. It will always be a part of me. Well, Margo, uh, I don't even know kind of how to encapsulate all this other than I'm inspired by your strength. Uh, I, I I hope and I, I pray that, you know, what you said that you're holding on to, that you're living for Ashley is something that you keep with you every single day and, and, and it keeps that fire burning inside of you um, because clearly um, you – have the inner strength to keep going on. And I don't think you should ever quit on that. Um, but it's also, you know, we talked to so many people on this podcast and it's, your perspective is refreshing. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your character, a lot of the people that we talk to are colonels and, you know, lieutenant colonels and, uh, you know, sergeant majors and things of that nature. But you're coming at this from such a a youthful experience, uh, as an 18 year old kid and, and, your emotion is raw and it's honest, and I just I appreciate everything that you've been sharing this entire episode with us, and I, I don't know how to thank you for that, but I, I certainly have learned a lot, um, and I've been doing a lot of these episodes, so um, I, I commend you. I, I, I think the world of, of the fact that you get out of bed every morning and you're able to, to keep going about your day, and, and I just wish you nothing but the best, and thank you for being part of the podcast. No, thank you so much. I really I didn't think I was going to have anything important to say, but, um, you pulled a lot out of me. So Ashley, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't thank know you for anything that <laughs> I'm sorry to cut you off. I don't know if you realize the amount of important things that you just said over the course of the last hour, you, you literally have touched on so many important things. And, uh, I think anybody who's listened to this podcast has a new appreciation, uh, for the men and women who put on a uniform, but also, uh, a greater appreciation for vets and, and what they have put their life on the line for and what the inner struggle is that a lot of us deal with. And, and you're a testament to recovery and you're a testament to, you know, resiliency and, and the want to, to go forward because there are people, as you know, from your, your sergeant, there are people who don't have that tested, you know, that, that in, intestinal fortitude and, and, and they don't keep going, but you do. And, and trust me, you have said plenty of important things here. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.